Continue on together, everybody. Grab your seats, and uh, we're going to teach. I'm going to teach from the Bible in a moment, as we do every week here at King's Church. We love to teach from the Bible, and we are in the middle of a series uh, via teaching from the Bible called Vital Signs. The series is called Vital Signs, Indications of a Healthy Heart. And if you've been here for any time at all, you'll know that week by week, we're looking at different vital signs, different things that tell us about the condition of our spiritual hearts, our souls, if you like, different things that will tell us um, to what extent we're living the fullness of the Christian life that Jesus has won for us. So we've looked at what it is to live joyfully, what it is to live prayerfully, what it is to live generously, what it is to, uh, to live um, nourished by the word of God, to live patiently and so forth. And in a few weeks' time, we'll be closing the series on the 23rd of July by looking at what it is to live hospitably. What it is to live hospitably, and what, why would we do that? And why would our hospitality be an indication of the health of our heart and what it is that we've encountered of the hospitality of God? Jason Stocks, many of you know, will be preaching that day. Uh, and on behalf of him, he's not able to be here today, but on behalf of him and Vicky, they would love to invite you to invite us to a bring and share lunch afterwards. So that was a great idea. He's going to preach into hospitality and then we'll experience it together afterwards. So 23rd of July is the date. Um, by bring and share lunch, what I don't mean is that we just bring our own kind of complete little picnic lunch and eat it ourselves. What I do mean is that we bring a savory dish, a good one, plenty of it, enough for ourselves, our family and some other people to extend hospitality and generosity in light of the generosity of God. And then we pull it all together and we have a serious feast to enjoy. Sound good? So that's the 23rd of July. We'll, uh, you'll receive an email this week from Jason and Vicky within the normal uh, church mailing list. If you're not on that mailing list, just connect with us at the connect point and we can add you to it. And then we might even, over the next two Sundays, might even get Jason to help us find a way of knowing what it is you should bring. But I will leave that in his, uh, in his capable hands. So watch this space. But 23rd of July, we're going to eat and enjoy hospitality together. Um, let me explain this morning's vital sign like this. Uh, I, was ch- I was hearing from a couple uh, this week who were talking about what it is they enjoy about rest. Or to put it a different way, they were, they were saying what kind of restful activities they enjoy. And I was amused to discover that for one uh, person in the couple, their idea of a restful experience would be like uh, closing the curtains, having a day at home, staying in bed for a while, watching a box set all day, that kind of restful day. For the other person in the couple, their idea of a restful activity was climbing Snowden. And this is the same couple, and they explained how for them they had a very, very different ideas of what a restful activity might look like. Um, I don't know what a restful activity looks like for you, as I mentioned that word, that's our vital sign for this morning, is rest. What does rest look like for you? What are the images in your mind's eyes? You imagine the perfect restful experience. The other Monday, I had my day off on a Monday, and I went to Lord's Cricket Ground. It was that day when it was beautiful sunshine. I sat there on my own, watching some cricket, reading the paper. For me, that is a deeply restful activity, probably for none of you. But what is yours? What is your restful activity? And indeed, how do you view rest? How do you view rest? As a necessity? Something you can't do without? Do you view it as a luxury? Something that's great if you can get it? Do you view it as weakness? You shouldn't really need to rest. How do you view rest? That's our vital sign this morning. And we're going to look at the gift of rest, the challenge of rest, and the source of rest. The gift of rest, the challenge of rest, and the source of rest. Number one, 
The gift of rest. Now, the nature of a series like this is that we are looking at themes from the Bible rather than one particular passage. So to do that, we have to jump around a little bit from all over and all through the story of the Bible so we can kind of track this theme. So if we go right back to the beginning of the story of the Bible, to the account in Genesis of God's creation of the world, we see this. We see that day by day, and just as an aside, those days could be days, they could be millions of years. From, from what I can understand, they're probably likely to be long and very different periods of time. But during those periods of time, God creates a perfect world. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1 says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, it's important to point out that God doesn't rest because he's tired, That's not why he chose to rest. He rests because he is deliberately placing within the rhythm of this perfect creation, within the rhythm of human flourishing, he is placing rest. That's what God is is doing. Rest from work, specifically. Now, work is also part of the rhythm of the perfect creation. You notice that? Work doesn't come after the fall, after things goes wrong. Work was there beforehand. It's within the context of human flourishing and the perfect creation. And next week, that will be our vital sign, looking at work. How do we view it? How do we treat it? What's our attitude towards it? How can we include our work within the pattern of following Christ? But today is rest, rest from work. And then later on in the story of the Bible, God instructs the people on the importance of this moment of rest that he's inserted in to the pattern of human flourishing. God says this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns pretty comprehensive moment of rest that God is establishing. And we know that God takes this pretty seriously because you probably recognize this um, command comes within the Ten Commandments. So within God's very clear instructions not to murder and not to steal, he places this command to rest. So he obviously holds it pretty seriously. And just as a society that doesn't steal from each other is obviously going to be a more flourishing society, God knows that one that a society that rests rhythmically, and regularly is also um, going to be healthy. And then later on in the story of the Bible, in the story of Exodus in chapter 33, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Rest is a gift. It's a gift for our good. God has built it into the rhythm of healthy life. And I wonder how that lands with you at the moment. You might be thinking, well, if only I could get some of this rest that you talk about. Or is rest kind of just something that maybe weaker people do and you're okay to go without rest? Don't know. We all have different ways of viewing rest, I think. But rest is a gift in all kinds of ways. Think about it. Rest is where we can be restored and replenished emotionally, physically, spiritually. Rest is where we can gain perspective on life. 
about the things that really matter and where we're headed. We can get a bird's eye view on life, can't we, in a different way when we rest. Rest is where we can laugh and eat and play and love and enjoy God's creation. Rest is where we can be free and not be controlled by the pressures of London life and London living. And resting in God, specifically taking time to listen to him, to enjoy him, to worship him, that, as the claim of Christianity goes, is where genuine, deep, soul, ultimate rest is to be found. If we could just have the next slide, please, Chris, that'd be great. It's a painting done by the artist Charlie Maxey, you might um, know of. It's entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son, which is portraying the story that Jesus tells in, in Luke chapter 15. I think it's also what their children, I'm told, looking at this morning by coincidence. And I find it such an evocative image. I'm no art expert or, or art critic, but I just find this such an evocative image. And for me, it's, it's what we're invited into. It's the invitation of Christianity, either for the first time when you become a Christian or for a regular and a fresh time as part of being a Christian. The invitation to come home to the Father, to find rest in him. I just find that a scene of rest in so many ways. To know the embrace of God, to know the approval of God, to know his welcome and his delight to holding you in his arms, to know him whispering truths and encouragement and love into your ear, to find rest for your soul. as part of the invitation of Christianity to come home to come home to God, to find rest in God, to know the the welcome of his embrace and his arms. That, I think, is why Jesus was able to say in Matthew 11, Jesus said, come to me, all you are weary and burned. I'll give you rest. And he goes on to say, I will give you rest for your souls. That's a deep, a deep rest that he's claiming to be found in him. So, Do you know rest as part of the rhythm of life? If that's what God kind of implanted into the template of human flourishing in the creation story, do you know rest as part of the rhythm of your life? Not that you have a big holiday once a year when you collapse in a heap and you try and get ready for the next uh, 11 and a half months. Do you know rest as part of the rhythm of life, physically, emotionally, spiritually? As a church, we're trying to get a bit better at this over time. So we try and build in rest through the rhythm of the church year. So, for example, our, our life groups, our midweek life groups that meet together each week to, to build friendship, to enjoy hospitality, to study the Bible, to worship, they meet in terms with rest periods in between, not least for the leaders to be able to be rested and, and restored and recalibrate. From the 30th of July, we'll start our August light Services where we have a stripped down feel, a bit more a simple morning, which is not least done to allow those who serve so faithfully and excellently on a Sunday to have some rest. And incidentally, if you want to connect in more to the life of the King's Church community, joining a Sunday serving team is a great way of doing that. You meet people, you love people, you serve God, and also that will help us build in rest, more rest for those that currently do serve. Ashburnham as you've already heard, will be a chance to get away for a weekend together to enjoy community and friendship and food and conversation and and to be equipped, as we've also heard, through worship and through teaching to to love God and engage with our culture more and more and reflect him to it. It should be a time of rest 
in amongst maybe some frenetic downpours of rain. I don't know, but I'm hoping there'll be genuine, there will be lots of genuine times of rest. And that's for all of us to come and connect in over that weekend. Whether you've been a Christian and you've been part of King's Church for ages or whether you're just brand new to us, why not come along? I think you'll find that you'll uh, get to know us better. You'll get to know the network of churches that we're part of. And most of all, you'll enjoy the friendship and the hospitality of God. So rest is a gift. And I wonder to what degree you're experiencing at the moment. And if anything like me, you also find the rest is a challenge. It's not only a gift doesn't just come there to be enjoyed. It comes as a challenge. So let's just dig into that. Number two, I would put it to you that rest is increasingly hard to come by, maybe more than ever before in this particular part of the world and this particular part of history in which we live. Now, that might not be the case for all of us. That might not be the primary challenge. Some of us might be out of work, and that's a far bigger challenge that you're facing. Other of us might experience ill-discipline or laziness, perhaps, at work or in other areas, and that's more of a, of a challenge. But for many of us, for many people in our neck of the woods, our rushed, workaholic, high-intensity, high-achievement culture is making rest, genuine, deep soul rest, increasingly hard to come by. Uh, Tim Keller, who some of many of you know is a bit of a hero of mine, he's a church leader in New York, and he, I think, very helpfully outlines four reasons, kind of from a sociological point of view, as to why it seems the modern Western world is finding rest harder and harder to come by. He goes through four things. He says, one, think about it, job security has never been uh, less secure these days than it, than it ever has been. There's more insecurity around job security. The days of starting a career, doing it for 40 years, are pretty much over. You add to that things like Brexit and the election results and the uncertainty with our economy and so forth. Job security is, is low for many, many people in London, which then adds to a reluctance to rest from work. I think he's onto something. Number two, he says the gap between the top and bottom earners is increasing, has increased and is increasing. So hence, therefore, the, the top earners are expected to work more and more savage hours to kind of justify much of that. And the bottom earners are often having to work two jobs to make ends meet. So recently, just this week, I saw that the Evening Standard reported that the proportion of Londoners with two jobs has increased by 29% over the last decades. Third thing he points out is technology. Technology means that we can, uh, basically it means that we can work anywhere, and so therefore we can work everywhere. And that has a big impact on the, the extent to which we rest. And then fourthly, he points out that traditional societies, of which there are still many around the world, in fact, there's still in the majority, Traditional societies around the world and through history generally have said to you that you get your meaning in life via your family, through fulfilling traditional roles, husband, wife, mother, father, brother, sister, and so on. And many traditional societies around the world would still hold the family as the key means of where you get your identity. Except our modern Western culture says something very different. We've said you define yourself by deciding what you need to be or want to be and working very hard to get it. So what does all that mean? What does those four things mean? Well, one, two, and three mean that as a society, we're probably more in need of rest and less able to have it than maybe any culture has been before. And then the fourth point means that we're probably, we have less ability emotionally to be able to rest than maybe any other culture has before. So it's a challenge. 
But we're not the only culture in history that has found rest hard. So is there a deeper issue, perhaps? Is there a deeper thing that's part of the human condition that would make rest hard beyond simply the challenges that we face in the modern West? Well, I read an article recently by a a woman called Julia Shulowitz, who wrote a very interesting article a number of years ago in the New York Times. And uh, she, Julia Shulowitz, she grew up in a religious home but she abandoned her Jewish faith as a, as a teenager, I think, or a 20-something, and uh, became a kind of uh, classic worker in New York. And she writes a very interesting article about how her kind of work-obsessed culture drove her to kind of re-examine her life a little bit, to re-examine where she was headed. And she wrote this article called Bring Back the Sabbath. And she's not, uh, she's not a practicing Jewish person. She's not a Christian. This is the article that she wrote. And she started thinking a lot about the Sabbath. And she became profoundly aware of how, basically how crucial a genuine Sabbath rest is to the flourishing of human beings. And like I say, it's a long, very interesting article. But I think she really helpfully taps into something, at least, of what might be at the core of why at least some of us find rest really really hard. And she says this, talking about the Sabbath and talking about how it's been used through history. And she says the historical Sabbath day, she says, not only did drudgery on that day give way to festivity and to family gatherings and to occasional worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down too, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. The machinery of self-censorship shut down on the Sabbath, stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. What does she mean? In other words, she's saying there's a restlessness in our condition that just stopping work or having leisure activities um, or getting some more sleep doesn't necessarily solve. She's saying there's a deeper problem. It's like there's a, it's like there's a work underneath the work that she's realized is at place in the human condition. The eternal murmur of self-reproach. Which is what? I guess if it's anything, it's that need that many of us have to prove ourselves, to, to make it clear that we, that we matter, that we are of substance. And that kind of work, that deep work to prove that we matter, that kind of work doesn't cease, potentially. It's never enough. When do you finish that? As far as I know, there's only one film about the Sabbath, as far as I'm aware, that's been, that's been made, Chariots of Fire. You might, you might know it. True story based upon uh, two athletes that went to the 1924 Paris Olympics to compete in some of the sprints there. In one case, went to compete in the 100-yard dash, as it, was then, as it was then known. And there are these two athletes, both very, very different in their outlook. And one of them is so driven so driven in how he goes about training. He's got this like inner fire urging him on to train and train and train and be able to win this 100-yard uh, dash. And, and when this athlete is asked, why are you training so hard? Why are you so driven? Um, the athlete, Harold Abrahams, replies and says, because I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. He's saying, <laughs> he's saying I, I need to prove myself. I think the reason why I'm getting slightly emotional is because I I know there's something of that in me. (laughs) It definitely has been, and I think it still looks. Maybe not as obvious or intense as as it was for Harold Abrahams, but he was saying, I need to prove I matter. 
And this race that I'm training for, that I'm working for, is that moment when I get to prove to the world whether my existence is worthy or not. Can you imagine being so that driven? I can. (laughs) And so many of us, I think, do live with something similar to that. Maybe more subtle, maybe not quite as dramatic, but it's there, I think. That work underneath the work, that eternal murmur of self-reproach, as Shulevitz says. Do I matter? Am I significant? And a holiday, as great as it is, or a West Wing box set, as great as that is, or all kinds of other leisure activities, or more sleep, those things, as great as they are, they don't solve that kind of deep restlessness. So what does? <laughs> what does? Number three, the source of rest. I think the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament puts it brilliantly. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians about what it means to believe in Jesus, to believe in the gospel. And in chapter four, verse nine, he writes this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his Referring to God's example of rest in in creation. In other words, the writer is saying, ultimate deep soul rest is found in God. So really, therefore, to be a Christian, if we take the general sweep of the New Testament, to be a Christian is somebody who can say, ultimately, all the work that I need to do is done. To be a Christian is somebody who can say, the work of proving myself, of being good enough, either to others or to myself or to God, that has been completed. A Christian can say, just as God said at creation, this is very good. Drummy said that, he finished his work of creating, he said, this is very good. A Christian should be able to say about their own life, because of the work of Christ, this, I am very good. And then rest as a result just as God rested. But how is that possible? How is that possible? Both uh, Mark and Luke, in their gospel accounts, tell of the incident when Jesus was out one day on, on the Sabbath. He was out for a walk on the Sabbath. In those days, it would have been somewhere between Friday evening and Saturday. And Mark and Luke tell us of how he was out with his disciples, with his friends. Uh, and Jesus, during that time, did two things that really infuriated the religious leaders, as he, as he often did. The first thing he did was that he allowed his disciples on the Sabbath to pick the grain from the grain fields to eat, uh, which broke one of the kind of supplementary additional Jewish laws that had been established over the centuries. And the second thing that he did that day was he healed a man who had a deformed hand, which also broke another rule that had been added over the centuries as a supplementary Jewish custom. And when Jesus was challenged about what are you doing breaking these rules, it fascinates me that he didn't say, well, the Sabbath is obsolete now. We don't, we don't need that. We don't need the Sabbath. We just need to work and cultivate. And if, if it's done in me, then you'll be fine. He doesn't say the Sabbath is obsolete. He says this, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So he's basically saying, I am the Lord of rest. That's the claim that he's making. It's a claim to deity. And it's an extraordinary claim. I am the Lord of rest is effectively what Jesus says. I, and only I, he's saying, 
I am where the genuine, deep soul rests. That the Sabbath in its purest form was supposed to point to, and I think that Julia Shulovitz, the New York Times, kind of glimpsed something of. Jesus saying, I am where that deep soul rest actually exists. It's found in me. It's a profound claim that Jesus makes. And by eating of the grain and by healing the man's hands, he's doing literal things but making symbolic statements as well. He's saying, Sabbath rest is like this. It's come to me and you find nourishing and you find healing and you find restoration for your soul. I'm the Lord of the rest, Jesus is saying. And how did Jesus' opponents respond to that claim? Well, in Mark's account, He closes the account by saying this in chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And the extraordinary thing is it was Jesus' death that really proved him, made him the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of of rest. Look at Jesus in the lead up to and his experience of the cross. Why is he crying Why is he weeping? Why is he crying out? Why is he thirsting? Because he's experiencing deep cosmic restlessness to the nth degree. He's experiencing our restlessness, all of our striving, all of our pursuit of satisfaction in created things, all of our making mini gods of ourselves, all of our sin. He's experiencing all of that through humanity. That's why the writer of 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. And so you could put it like this. You could say, Jesus, who had only ever known the deep rest and peace of the Trinity and of heaven, experienced and took on cosmic, infinite restlessness for you and I. And what did he say as he drew his last breath? It is finished. It's done. The restlessness of the human soul that cannot be satisfied, that makes us work and work and work to prove that we matter, that we're of substance. Jesus says that work is done. Not by a click of the fingers, but by him experiencing and absorbing the very depths of restlessness and sin. He said it's done defeated. Come and know God. Come and stand. That's what a Christian can do. Come and stand in front of God and say, I can rest in the work of Christ. It's done. That's profound soul rest when you can say that. I look at what Jesus, I look at Jesus' work and its perfection and its accomplishments and the victory of it. And because of his work, I stand in front of God as one who can rest for now and forever. I don't have to prove myself to anyone or anything. Can you say that? Can I say that? That's what I've been exploring this week. So how shall we respond? We've got a good time to uh, respond together. Let me just close by just telling one more brief story of another Olympic athlete. We heard about Harold Abrahams in 1924 at Paris. Um, But what about Steele Johnson at the Rio Olympics last year? Steele Johnson was part of uh, two divers who came second. He won the silver medal at the uh, 2016 Rio Olympics at 10-meter diving. And they're both Christians. And they were were interviewed afterwards about their achievement and also about their their faith. 
And Steel Johnson, which is a great name, by the way. You know, um, can we call our baby Steel? That'd be amazing. <laughs> no, would appear to be the res- would appear to be the response. Steel Johnson. He said this. The fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace. It gave me ease. And it let me enjoy the contest. If something went great, I was happy. If something didn't go great, I could still find joy and rest. Do you hear the words that he used then? Ease, joy, peace, rest, because he knew who he was. He knew whose work he ultimately rested in. Can you say that? Can you say that? Can I say that? Joy, peace, ease, rest. He worked hard. He's an Olympic athlete. He won silver medal. He probably has trained and worked harder than any of us have ever worked or trained in our lives, probably, at least in some way. Not, not a lazy guy. Worked very hard, very single-mindedly. But he said, the bottom line is, however this goes, because of Christ, because of his work, because of what he has done, I can know rest and peace and ease and joy, whatever happens. And he didn't win. He didn't win. Came second. Which, if you're Harold Abrahams in 1924, means that you have failed to justify your existence for living. I've played just enough sport to know that it can get that deep in terms of tapping into whether I matter. And there are many other spheres of life that can tap into the same thing. And the joy of what Steele Johnson has found is such a secure identity in what Jesus has done in his work that he can know peace and ease and joy and rest. And it's available to us this day. For the first time, as you come to Christ for the first time, into the arms of God, and and for a fresh time. Because if anything like me as a Christian, we need to hear this again. We need to know about the work of Jesus and its impact. We need to know that he took on cosmic restlessness that went right to the depth of the human condition, came out the other side into life and said, have abundant, restful life now and forever. So, Jamie and the band, could you come and join us and help us to to worship and to rest in God. Um, There are some ways I want us to respond, but I figured rather than saying, you need to do this, this, and this, that might be contrary to the idea of resting. So there are some things I think that we could really practically respond. And later on, we're going to be sharing communion together. Maybe an opportunity to rest in God's presence here, receive prayer, make some changes perhaps to encounter and respond towards him. But I think initially, let's just rest in the gospel. Let's just worship. Let's just enjoy and hear from him and see what he does to our souls. Okay, can we stand? I'll have the mic at the front as God keeps speaking to us. Do come and, do come and share. And like I say, a bit later on as we worship, we will share communion and maybe an opportunity to really tangibly respond and encounter the rest of God and the rest of the gospel. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you, what you promised to be able to do, to call those who feel weak and weary and burdened to yourself and give them deep soul rest, you have accomplished, you have done, not by clicking your fingers, but by paying an extraordinary cost, by taking upon yourself the restlessness of the human condition and defeating it 
and nailing it to a cross and burying it in a tomb and inviting us to be united to yourself and know abundant life, fullness of life. Where, yeah, we work hard, we aim for things, we do the very best that we can to to use the gifts and the skills and the talents that you've given us. We do the very best that we can to bring glory to your name, to, to build the local church, to be salt and light out and amongst our community and our world. But underneath all of that is a deep soul rest that says, I am enough. I am enough. I'm very good because God says so, because Jesus made it possible. Oh God, I pray we would know that deep soul rest. I pray we'd know it now as we worship you, the one who made it possible. Amen.